Welcome back for part two of the July 20th announcement of the new $100 million initiative to look for alien intelligence. Back now to Yuri Milner. Now we can answer a few questions. Of course, all the uh, panelists will be happy to do so. But we uh, collected a few questions from uh, some of the participating journalists uh, that wanted Stephen Hawking to answer those questions. So obviously they have been pre-recorded by him. And uh, I would ask uh, some of those questions now, and I hope Steve will, Stephen will be able to answer. So the first question was, why are you hopeful that this initiative might bear fruit? It is sure to bear fruit. Experimental astronomy is always worthwhile. If a search of this scale and sophistication finds no evidence of intelligence out there, that is a very interesting result. It will not prove that we are alone, but it will narrow the possibilities, and it's likely to produce data that is fascinating in its own right. The second question was... What does it offer that earlier initiatives have not? Resources. Lots of time on major telescopes around the world. A huge data capacity. And a long-term commitment that is not at risk of being withdrawn. Thank you. And the third question. And why it is important for mankind to pursue this endeavor? Mankind has a deep need to explore to learn, to know. We also happen to be sociable creatures. It is important to us to know if we are alone in the dark. Beyond that, as I said in my presentation, it is a deep question about the universe. A universe full of technological civilizations is a very different place from one with only us. Perhaps even different at astronomical scales. That makes it astronomy's job to find out. Another question that was asked was, do you believe that there are intelligent forms of life in the universe? They might be there, they might not. But recent experiments like the Kepler mission have changed the game. We now know there are so many worlds, and organic molecules are so common, that it seems quite likely that life is out there. But intelligence is a great unknown. It only took 500 million years for life to evolve on Earth. But it took two and a half billion years to get from the earliest cells to multi-cell animals. And technological intelligence has appeared only once. So it may be very rare. And when it does evolve, we only need to look in the mirror to know that it can be fragile and prone to self-destruction. You said once that making contact with aliens would be really a bad idea. <coughs> Why do we need to avoid contacts with them? We don't know much about aliens, but we know about humans. <laughs> if you look at history, encounters between humans and less intelligent organisms have often been disastrous from their point of view. And encounters between civilizations with advanced versus primitive technology have gone badly for the less advanced. 
A civilization reading one of our messages could be billions of years ahead. If so, they will be vastly more powerful and may not see us as any more valuable than we see bacteria. And uh, the last question was, we have not discovered any sign of intelligent life in the universe so far. Uh, how do you, how do we look for it? It's an open problem, so we need to try lots of solutions. Keep doing what we're doing, but also develop fresh ideas. The breakthrough initiatives are a great start to that. They are bringing traditional radio astronomy to another level of power and sensitivity. They are taking a new approach to laser searches. And by opening up their data and source codes to everyone, they are building in lots of room for innovation. Thank you, Professor Hawking. So now, um, please, if anyone wants to ask any question. Nick Miller from the Sydney Morning Herald. Can I ask uh, the panel, obviously there are famous equations about how likely it is life is out there. Given the new capability of this search, how likely it is, is it that we will find something in the 10 years? Well, maybe you want to ask the author of the equation. <laughs> you just asked the question that we hate to hear. <laughs> And the reason is because we don't have sufficient knowledge to answer the question. Uh, as you know, the, pre the presence of intelligent life, technology using life, has to be the result of many phenomena, planetary formation, origins of life, evolution, so forth. And many of those things we can now quantify. And we can put real, not just guess at how often those occur, but actually we have observational evidence to support our ideas. But there is one about which we know very little, and that is the longevity, the length of time that civilizations, having created a technology we can detect, continue to use that technology. We ourselves have been detectable for uh, almost 100 years at this point. But uh, we are moving on to more sophisticated technologies, which may in fact make us less easy to detect, even though we are thriving and richer and living better lives than we ever have before, we may be harder to find. This has given us pause. We worry about it. We wonder, wonder if there might be things that counter that, such as the establishment of electrical <coughs> power generating stations in space that transmit uh, energy to Earth on radio beams. Some of that energy would be uh, reflected back into space and make a strong signal. The point is that uh, we are the beginners, the inexperienced ones. We don't know what we will become, and we don't, as a result, as a result we cannot use ourselves as a good example as to what, how long civilizations remain detectable. And so we're left with this great difficulty that uh, one of the key terms we use to establish the number of detectable civilizations we know really nothing serious about. There's a tremendous possible range of plausible answers. Uh, a way to put this is that we have a, what we call a very serious catch-22 situation, which, by the way, gets in the way when we go to governmental bodies to ask for funds. They ask us, how many dollars do you have to spend to succeed? Well, if you're sending a spacecraft to Pluto, as we just did, you can answer that question. But when they ask us, as you just asked, uh, 
how much do you have to do to find another civilization? There is this catch that we cannot tell you the answer until we have succeeded. We must succeed before we can tell you how much it's going to cost to succeed. And that is very awkward. And what it says is that we just simply have to explore in the dark and uh, hope that there are people like Yuri Milner who will keep us going for however long it takes to succeed. And uh, that's the best I can do with your question. If you ever found life on other planets, what type of question would you ask it? What would be the first thing you said to it? So, Anne, you want to take this? <laughs> well, I think hello would probably be right up there. Uh, well, obviously, we'd want to know uh, their history, their social forms, their uh, what how they understand the origin of the universe. Uh, obviously, if we're talking to a civilization which is likely to be far more advanced than ours, because we've only been at this for about a minute and a half, uh, we've only really been doing science for 400 years in any kind of systematic way. And so uh, it's very likely that the civilization that we might encounter would either be would probably be more advanced than ours. And if that's the case, then I'd, I'd want to know, I think, a hundred answers, a hundred questions at least, uh, about how the universe came to be, the nature of time, uh, and uh, dark matter, and no, no end of questions. So, um, but the first thing, I think, would be to establish a kind of means of communication and... Uh, and a kind of a, a intention, which is to learn. Um, it's going to be a very slow dialogue, by the way. So the nearest star is four light years away. So you'll have to wait eight years at least. And um, within our galaxy, it could take uh, hundred to two hundred thousand years to to get the answer. So, so if you are kind of a little bit patient, then. The dialogue will make sense. Yes, just you're the next. Uh, there's a microphone. Microphone there. He's sort of looking at me as he asks this question. So the question is why uh, for, for those why aren't we transmitting? Why, why we're not transmitting? Um, this, this has been a, a very active subject recently, and there are many people who have said we should be sending signals. Isn't that the fair thing? If we expect them to send signals, shouldn't we be doing it? <laughs> Fairness in the universe is perhaps a universal law. Now, in, in <clears throat> the uh, Breakthrough Listen project, we have no intention of sending. And there are two reasons for this. First, we know that there are people who are afraid that sending is, in fact, going to endanger us. We don't particularly believe that, but uh, why cause anxiety and paranoia, if you will, with people? The main reason we don't transmit and don't plan to transmit is that it 
will not bring us any benefit at all. The nearest star is four light years away. The nearest civilization is more likely a hundred light years away at least. So if we transmit and wait for an answer to come back, that will be, it'll arrive 200 years from now. Uh, and by that time, we will learn of other civilizations by listening to their radio signals. So when funds are short, as they are, limited, we don't want to use funds for anything that's not going to help us detect the extraterrestrials. So sending messages uses funds in a way that will not produce any useful benefit to us. Such funds should be used only to aid in the search and increase the power of the search. From what you were talking about earlier, I take it that if you're asking you actually do find a civilization out there, and it's not too far away, you might enter into some kind of dialogue. Yes. Uh, if we found a civilization. Well, that's, you know, that's another part. Uh, I guess you didn't hear the question. He's, he suggested that, well, if we, we did indeed find a civilization not too far away, we would engage in a dialogue with it. And I was saying, yes, we would. But in that case, we would know what we were dealing with and we could construct a useful message. When we have no contact, know nothing about a civilization, it's very hard to conceive a, or plan a message which would be effective. And that's another reason why we should not just uh, shout in the dark. Uh, we don't know what a, a sensible message might be. So, so the, the answer, there are two answers to this. One is, at the present time, it's a waste of resources to send messages. Better uh, apply the resources to the search. And the second is, if we do find a civilization, then you study it and develop a message that makes some sense and send it to them. And, and if I may add, the, uh, while it's true that we don't contemplate sending a message at this point, the exercise of formulating what message we would send is useful, I think, in the same way that Voyager's pale blue dot image of the Earth and Carl Sagan's magnificent meditation on the significance of that one pixel Earth, that tiny Earth, is uh, a degree of, of consciousness on this planet that uh, I, I feel a certain urgency uh, about. And so while it's true, we, we will likely send a message the actual creation of the message is uh, is, a, is, a, is a step forward and a very possible positive gesture. Yes, hi. Emily Martin from France. Um, I was wondering, you're talking about a new level of technology and innovation. I was wondering how do you achieve that? Um, the Green Bank Telescope is not new. You're not building a 30 meters telescope in order to uh, detect a uh, signal. So I was wondering, what is it about? How do you achieve that? Is it um, a question of time, tel uh, time of telescope now available? And also, the other question was, do you assume that um, an extraterrestrial intelligence would have to um, actually um, focus a signal towards us in order to be uh, detected? Yeah. Jeff, you want to answer? Uh, thanks uh, for that question, Emily. Um, there's a very important technological uh, innovation that's required to do this search properly. Um, 
And the reason is that we have absolutely no idea what frequencies of electromagnetic radiation, light, we don't know what frequencies the advanced civilizations might be broadcasting at. It might be uh, 50 megahertz, 100 megahertz, a gigahertz, 10 gigahertz, 50 gigahertz. When you think about our own radio dial, the fact that you tune your radio in your car to some specific frequency, one frequency after another, shows that we humans broadcast one frequency at a time, and then we in turn have to tune our radios. But we don't know from the advanced civilizations which frequencies they are broadcasting at. So we have to search all of them. And there's something like 10 billion hertz or 10 billion separate frequencies that are in the uh, so-called microwave region, the quiet region of the uh, electromagnetic spectrum from about 100 megahertz to 10 gigahertz. That's a factor of 100 in uh, frequencies. So how do you search all 10 billion frequencies? Every time you point the telescope, you'd like to be tuned in to all 10 billion of those frequencies. What we're going to develop at Berkeley is the use of some technology. I'll tell you the names of them. Field programmable gate arrays, FPGAs, are just uh, becoming quite popular, very fast computational ability. And another one is called a graphical processing unit, GPU. Um, it's similar to a CPU, but much faster for uh, array-type uh, arithmetic uh, computations. So we're going to be developing FPGAs and GPU electronic systems. Uh, indeed, stemming from the innovation in Silicon Valley, we'll be assembling them at UC Berkeley in ways that allow us to sample 10 billion frequencies simultaneously. You have a pretty old radio in your car, right? <laughs> uh, yes, Clive Cookson from the Financial Times. I'd like someone to address more directly Stephen Hawking's fears. I mean, I know you're being cautious, but would someone like to put forward the positive um, reasons why we might want to send out a message? Martin, you want to um, well, I agree with Frank that uh, we would not uh, wish to devote effort to sending out a message now. Uh, I have to say that I don't share Stephen's concerns at all. I suspect <laughs> that these um, uh, uh, aliens, if they exist, would no way here already. They may be watching the Earth for a very long time as a propitious source of intelligent life. So I don't share this concern. I think, if I can just add a footnote, um, I think we mustn't... Uh, imagine that any intelligence is like ours at all. Um, we think of our human intelligence, which has uh, become technological in the last few centuries. Um, if we survive this century, it may become um, um, AI, which is uh, inorganic and may spread through uh, the galaxy and beyond. So we are thinking about the possibility of intelligences possibly quite different from ours, maybe not on planets at all, and maybe... Uh, so different from us that we can't communicate at all. So the thing that we should try to do is to find uh, evidence for some signal which is manifestly artificial. We can do that, and that's the aim. But uh, uh, even if we can do that, then whether we can decode it or not is a separate question. And uh, if they're very advanced, they probably know we're here already. Yes, may I also say something? I, I agree with uh, Professor Rees passionately because, you know, 
If you look at the extraterrestrials depicted in popular culture, they're always a projection, a mere projection of our fears. And uh, you know, we are we are primates, and we have evolutionary baggage, which makes us act short-sightedly and, and violently too often. But we also may be passing through a period of our development. We may get to a point in the not-too-distant future, certainly on these timescales, where we outgrow uh, that evolutionary baggage and evolve to be less violent and short-sighted. And it's my hope that the extraterrestrial civilization is not just more technically proficient than we are, but also more aware of the rarity and preciousness of life in the cosmos. So if you wanted an optimistic view, there it is. <laughs> Thomas Morse Kynes, what do you think a message would look like? Do you think it would be just a repeated series of frequencies, or do you think it may be a, a more complex uh, burst of code that you would then have to try and understand? All right. right. You want to this one? <laughs> I'll take that because <coughs> you, you, you've sent the first one. So. Yeah, I, 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 I've actually sent a message. And, uh, I'm not going to apologize for that. <laughs> it was actually sent as a proof of concept that you could actually send a message that somebody could decode. And when you go to send a message, you have to think of exactly what the issue that you raised, which is how do you code it in such a way that it will communicate accurately what you're trying to communicate and more than that, you have to be very careful that you don't create an ambiguous message, one that has an alternative decoding, which is not your intent, but maybe actually be scary or frightening or aggressive or embarrassing to us. <laughs> so when you construct a message, and that's one of the reasons we're proposing to have this contest, is so people recognize that they have to deal with these issues that I just raised to, to make a good message. Now, there have been other attempts to make messages, and some recent ones included um, cloud sourcing uh, messages from people that were to be sent into the cosmos. Most of those turned up as sentences, statements in a written human language, English, Russian, so forth. Now, uh, frankly, these are nonsensical to send because uh, there's no way the extraterrestrials will know how to in, uh, decode those things into a, a, an intelligible sentence unless you send along an, send along an enormous dictionary and a, a teaching manual for the language you're using. <clears throat> so you don't do that. You cannot just uh, send in... Well, one, one suggestion was in Braille... Uh, a message in English. <laughs> um, you have to send something that can be, can, can be decoded into something sensible clearly without having a common language. You cannot count on having a common language or even the ability to identify and understand how that language works. The way that works that we know of is to send pictures. You send them pictures if necessary, moving pictures. And in our wildest dreams, you send holograms, moving holograms. You can send three-dimensional 
<laughs> messages uh, which have actions in them, which will tell the the extraterrestrials that everything you can you could is that it's just as though you were there talking to them, uh, because when you get pictures, you can decode those without having to know a language, and we have sent things encoded in such a way that were easily decryptable, and uh, we were careful that there were no alternative decryptions that made sense. So, to my mind, what works, and you may think this is simplistic, pictures work. Or three-dimensional pictures. Or a three-dimensional movie. Or holograms. No language involved. Thank you. Uh, Alexander Martin from the Register. I'm wondering if you, you might have an estimation for how much data Breakthrough Listen would be producing and when that might begin to be published. Jeff? You can do the calculation in your head, and I'll walk you through it. It's very interesting, actually. Um, at 10 gigahertz, if you digitize that set of voltages coming down the back end of a radio telescope, 10 billion different voltages per second, 10 billion per second. If you sample them, it requires something like 10 billion bytes, 10 gigabytes per second. Now, if you stare at a star hoping to pick up a signal, let's say for an hour, 3,600 seconds, you see quickly that you're up to tens of terabytes after just one hour. And now if you carry out the breakthrough initiative for years, you're talking about millions of terabytes per year and even more. It's such a severe problem that we have to do on-site sieving, that is to say signal detection on-site at the telescope, trying our best to assess which portions of the data are plausibly interesting with some sense of a signal above the noise and retain that data because there's no way to store millions and millions of terabytes of data from just one telescope. And this is a standard problem in radio astronomy. You simply can't save all of the raw data. You can save those uh, data segments that look somewhat interesting, and even that will require us to store hundreds of petabytes. If you, if you do make a, a really um, earth-shattering discovery, how will you react to political pressure on you to keep it quiet? Well, first of all, I uh, just want to remind you that all the data will be made open. So the, uh, the project is very apolitical in that sense, yeah. that um, maybe it's going to be not a professional uh, astronomer who is going to detect the signal in the data. So, um, so it's hard to say how you can keep it uh, uh, contained. But uh, but that was never a goal, obviously. So I think Frank wants to take a first yeah. uh, <clears throat> We've had actually had experiences with this. We've had signal. We've captured signals that looked as though they were the real thing, and we tried to keep them to ourselves because we didn't want to call, cry wolf and embarrass ourselves by revealing, "Oh no, this was just somebody's microwave oven gone awry." Uh, and what our experience has been is that it was impossible to keep them a secret because the people go home at night and, and tell their wife or their kids, hey, I think we got a signal today. 
And the next thing you know, you see it in the New York Times. And it's, uh, it's just amazing how quickly the word gets out. So in, in practice, we have found it impossible to keep the, the apparent detection of a signal a secret. Yeah, uh, Olive Morton, uh, for, for Frank, really, um, you've written before that the, and this would be the longest, most persistent SETI program in history, and you've written before that the thrill wears off a SETI program very quickly and that it always needs to be combined with other work um, or people just find the lack of, lack of results too depressing. What would you like to see this work combined with? Uh, yes, you... <coughs> I guess you have heard me talk before or something, but <clears throat> SETI is a very exciting business, and when you're taking the data, it's very exciting because every, t- every time a new spectrum comes out of the machine, you take a good look at it and hope you see a bump in the spectrum, which is the clue that there's a signal there, and it doesn't happen. And after a few days of this, it starts to get boring, <laughs> and then you realize something else that it's very likely that you're not going to get any published papers out of what you're doing. (laughs) And this is very bad for a person's career. It's hard. You don't get pay raises when you don't produce results. And so what we've learned is that the people who do SETI are very enthusiastic, but they are indeed humans. (laughs) They're not machines. And they need to do work which is... Uh, rewarding and gives them a career path to greater uh, opportunities, better salaries, and so forth. (laughs) So the right thing to do, and it's what I hope we're going to do in in the uh, Breakthrough Initiative, is that uh, engage people in this, but always they will do partially SETI, but also with another part of their intelligence do standard astronomical research so that they will be doing something that produces results, keeps them from getting frustrated, and allows them to establish a, a record as a successful scientist. And then Jeff, maybe you can also elaborate on that, that indeed that is the plan to, uh, 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 to record all the data and then maybe non-steady result will yeah, so there, there are two, I think, very exciting um, side benefits to the first breakthrough initiative. While we're searching for SETI radio signals, we will, of course, also allow pulsar searchers, quasar searchers, people looking for fast radio burst signals, to pick off our data, look at the data, and try to make detections of those objects anew. And maybe even more importantly, the data we do examine and the data we store may reveal new astronomical objects that nobody ever dreamed of. It's quite common when you open up new parameter space in astronomy, new frequencies, uh, new detection thresholds, that you discover astronomical objects that you had no clue about and they suddenly appear in the data because you're sampling a domain of signals that no one's ever sampled before. So there's a chance of discovering the unexpected. Why don't we ask one uh, last question? Thank you. Uh, Warren Nettlesmith from Channel 4 News. Um, so for the panel, really, uh, going forward in, 20, in the 21st century, do you think then that private investment is the future of space exploration? I'll take a first crack at this. Um, 
the question, just to repeat it, I think, was the role of the private sector in space exploration and astrophysics research in general. I think it's a very important question. It's a profound question. It's a question that casts a spotlight back on our current global economy and our society. How do we operate? How do we uh, fund science? How do we fund, indeed, the arts? Um, I'll give two short answers, and others may want to chime in. First, in the domain of space exploration, of actually sending spacecraft, which is somewhat different than what we've described today, I think all of us in this room are impressed, is perhaps the right word, impressed that NASA, for example, is beginning to engage the private sector, contracting out major portions, booster rockets, capsules, and so on, and I think the realistic um, situation uh, logistically, financially, managerially is indeed that the private sector has a very important role to play. And NASA headquarters understands that. The White House understands that. Back on astrophysics research, in fact, there is a long history going back over a century of the private sector playing the key role. Uh, the Mount Wilson telescopes in Southern California, the Mount Palomar telescopes, both funded by the private sector. The Keck Observatory, the world's finest in my view, in Hawaii, those ground-based telescopes were all funded by uh, thoughtful, scientifically-minded, um, entrepreneurial uh, folks. Lick who Observatory. Had Lick Observatory, thank you. Uh, so there's a long history of the private sector stepping forward using their resources to fund astronomy research. Well, I understand that um, we uh, probably uh, don't have any more time. Oh, please, Martin. If I, if I could comment, of course, science research in general is a public good and it's right the public should support it. And things aren't quite the same outside the U.S., and, for instance, the world's biggest optical telescope is being built for public funds in Europe, and that's an example. Um, but I think it's very good that space research is being funded um, by uh, private people. They can afford to take higher risks than NASA can, particularly in manned space flights. And I think for SETI, um, which has depended entirely on private funding, that's great. Although I feel that there's no reason why there shouldn't be supplementary public funding for SETI because if you were to ask people coming out of a science fiction movie would they like some of their tax revenues from the movie hypothecated for a SETI search a lot would say yes and I'd actually be happier if I was an American to uh, defend pub public expenditure on SETI than on many rather arcane topics in pure research uh, in other areas so I don't see why there shouldn't be public funding as well but it's wonderful that in the U.S. private funding has dominated and also that in SETI searches it's been almost entirely private funding and that's why this particular huge break forward is uh, so welcome and we're so grateful to Yuri. Well, I want to thank everybody for participating in this. Thank you very much.